Thank you for tuning in to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a church located in Lexington, Kentucky, with a heart for God and a vision for the gospel. I'm Derek Holmes, lead pastor. So grab your Bibles and let's hear from the Word. Join me in the New Testament book of Matthew. It's actually the first book of the New Testament, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21 in just a minute. But I was thinking about something the other day. Uh, the social distancing has really changed our lives. Um, it's probably changed pieces of our lives forever. Um, nothing, uh, some things about our lives are probably not going to go back to the same. But I was also thinking about this. What is it that you are missing the most uh, during this time of pandemic? Uh, because we know that life has had to slow down. We can't go anywhere. What are you missing the most during this time of pandemic? We always look forward to different things in different seasons. And it seems like everything's been canceled. And I know one of those things, especially here in Kentucky where our church is, uh, we're really missing March Madness. Uh, when you think about it this way, last night, Saturday night would have been the final four. And tomorrow night, we would have been watching Kentucky win championship number nine. Uh, and uh, I know it's probably too soon to say that. And it's probably sent some of you all into, uh, into, uh, into depression already. We'll try to have some group counseling for you on Zoom or something like that for that. But it just seems like life has just been put on pause and it's just kind of a, a shadow of what we normally think life is. We're all missing different things during this pandemic. Um, I saw a video on, online a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it was after the uh, St. Patrick's Day parade was canceled because of social distancing. There was this little girl and she was just all decked out in her green and you could tell that she was ready and her parents recorded the bad news telling her that the, the parade had been canceled and there wouldn't be a St. Patty's Day parade. And she starts crying and I feel sorry for this girl. She goes, but parades are the best thing in my life. You know, and some of you may be feeling that way about the thing that you're missing. Maybe it is parades that you're missing. But I mean, because who doesn't like a good parade, right? Parades are cool. They're fun. I mean, uh, Thanksgiving morning in the Holmes house is not Thanksgiving if it's not, if we don't watch the Thanksgiving Day Parade. Um, there's also, there's the 4th of July parades that go on. There's all kinds of different things that take place to celebrate things. Uh, the best parade that I ever saw was about four years ago when the Cubs won the World Series. And I just, I still remember the moment and the feeling that I had as they were driving through the city, uh, the, the streets of Chicago with that World Series trophy there in the bus. There wasn't a whole lot of fanfare to it. Just a simple bus, a baseball team, and the trophy that they've been waiting on for 108 years. Can I get a witness, man? It was, it was something special. And it's probably something that's never gonna happen again for another 100 years. Uh, so I'm glad that I was able to watch that and tune into that. But parades are something that's not really just something that our modern culture does. Parades have been around uh, for centuries. Uh, even in the ancient days, even in the days of the Bible, parades took place. Now, they were usually for something different. They, they for di were di for different reasons. Uh, military generals would be the ones that would throw parades uh, more than anything. Uh, they would, as they were going out to battle, they would, the, the citizens of the village or of the city would line the streets to give the, uh, to give the soldiers a good send off and well wishes. Um, and then when they came home victorious, they would come home and the people would line the streets and they would throw jewelry at them and flowers and praise them for the victory that they had brought on their behalf to their city. The Romans were probably the ones that, that really did parades all out. Uh, it's said before, and, and some of the ancient historians would say that the Roman generals would actually spend more time planning their return victory parades and they would actually spend time planning out the battles that they were actually going to have to fight which I think is kind of ridiculous, but that's just how much that they, uh, they loved a good parade. 
because they wanted to show, and the thing about the parade at those days was it was something that marked something important to their culture, something that was significant, and it marked and symbolized victory, it symbolized majesty, and it symbolized power. And it brought great respect to people. If you were the keynote person in a parade running through the city, especially in the time of, uh, of the Roman Empire, you were important. You had power. You were Caesar. You were a, a mighty general. And everyone had to just bow down to you in fear and in reverence. And what we look at in our text this morning is actually kind of a parade that takes place, too, in the city of Jerusalem. Now, this was a parade that the, Roman, uh, that the Romans didn't put together. It was a, a parade that was just put together uh, on the spot when Jesus came riding into the city of Jerusalem. And the thing about this parade that day, it really shook the whole world. The whole world took notice of Jesus at this point because the whole world had come into, uh, had come into Jerusalem uh, for the Passover feast. Every year at Passover, there would be people from all around the world that would return home to, uh, to God's city and they would celebrate and observe the Passover together. And so when Jesus walks in or comes into this city riding on that donkey, there were representatives from all over the region, all over the world that took notice of this Messiah who came walking through. And so that's what we're going to pick up in our, um, in our passage this morning. It's an important note, too, that we're going to be looking at passages out of Matthew and out of Luke this morning. But Palm Sunday, the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, is one of the events that is noted four times in each one of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them record this moment when Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem triumphantly. Uh, it marks the beginning of Passion Week. It marks the beginning of what they call Holy Week as well, which in a week's time, Jesus is going to go from being praised and, uh, and lifted high as the Messiah there in Jerusalem, what we're going to look at. And in a week's time, he's going to go from there to being scorned and rejected and betrayed and crucified, hung on a cross and killed, and then also... In another couple days after that, he would rise from the dead and break out of that, uh, break out of that tomb and we celebrate Easter. In seven days' time, we see some of the most important events, some of the most well-known events of Jesus' life and ministry. And we find the most hopeful events, some, also some of the saddest events um, in, in Christianity as well. This week is known as Passion Week because it's known as the week of suffering. Because from this moment, he'll be at his highest. And then it's just going to continue to go low. And then again, we'll see him exalted and lifted high when he uh, raises from the dead. And we're going to celebrate that and talk about that next Sunday. But beginning in Matthew chapter 21, in verse, uh, in verse number one, we're going to read through verse number 11, uh, this passage on the, uh, on the triumphant entry of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bible, follow along with me. It says this. This is when they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two disciples telling them, go into the village ahead of you. And at once you will find the donkey tied there with her foal or with her colt. He said, untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This all took place so that, was, uh, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. And, and the prophecy said this, tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and they did just as Jesus directed them, which by the way, uh, when Jesus says to do something, this is always the best reaction to go and do what Jesus has said. And it says, and they brought the donkey in its foal. And when they laid their clothes on them, he sat on them and a very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. And then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed him shouted, 
Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now the word Hosanna is a Hebrew word which means Lord save us. But not just Lord save us, there's an urgency to it. It means Lord save us now at this very moment. And then it says in verse number 10, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar. And they were saying, who is this? Who is this that's coming into our city? Who is this that we're hearing Hosanna shouted for? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning from your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, that it is just, and that it is never changing. We thank you that we can place our faith in it. And we thank you for the promises that we find in it as well. I pray in this time that we are looking into your word together, that you would speak to us today, to our hearts that it would not be my words, that it would not be my, uh, my way of convincing people, but Holy Spirit would be you that speaks to us. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. So what we see here in this passage is we see this beautiful account that was prophesied a long time ago, and prophecy is being fulfilled on a day when everyone is gathered in Jerusalem, when the whole world is gathered in Jerusalem, and everyone can see here is the Messiah. God doesn't make any mistakes here. He made sure that it was a day when there would be the most people there to see Jesus Christ. Christ's triumphant entry, as we said, marks the beginning of this week that Jesus is going to go from being the king of the hill to being, the, to being crucified on Calvary's hill to then walking out of an empty tomb to give us life everlasting and to, to give us salvation. The truth is that this journey started a long time before he entered into Jerusalem. Uh, it started back before his public ministry began. It started back before he came to earth as a baby in a manger. It started uh, way back before any of that. Because what Jesus did here, the purpose of Jesus and what he was doing on this day was, was part of a much bigger plan that was established before the creation of the world began. You see, before you and I were ever created, before Adam and Eve were even created, God knew exactly what was going to take place. And instead of just halting it and not doing it, knowing that Adam and Eve would fall and sin would enter into the world, knowing that it would cost him his one and only son, he still created us because he loves us and he wants fellowship with us. Long before any of that took place, Jesus was already aware of what would take place. His journey began long before he came to earth as a man. You see, they, what, what happened this day on this parade went way above and beyond what anyone expected and what anyone understood at that moment. And here's my question when looking at this. If that's true, if this parade and if this moment had been kind of written in, uh, written in the records way before it even took place, why does the parade seem so simple? Why does it seem like it's just thrown together and that it's just like makeshift? Why wasn't this planned out? I mean, the Romans took a lot of pain to, uh, to make sure that they planned out big parades. Macy's doesn't just gather together and just blow the balloons up and say, hey, let's all walk down the street, man. It takes years of planning to pull off just one parade. Uh, marching bands, they have to practice and they have to get ready. Broadway pro uh, producers, they have to pr practice and get ready. Everything has to run like clockwork and they have to plan. Jesus, this parade, this moment was something that we've been waiting for since the dawn of time. And it was, seems like it's just thrown together. But you know what? I think that speaks something about the beauty of Christ to us. Is that yes, Jesus could have come in grand, majestic glory. He could have come as the, as the conquering hero and as someone that no one could ever deny. But he chose to come in a simple manner because that's him. Because it shows his humility to us. And it is right in step with the way everything had been going from the beginning. Because here's a man who was born as king of kings and lord of lords, as the prince of peace. He wasn't born in a palace. 
Where was he born? He was born in a stable, and he was laid in a manger. Why? Because that's where the simple people went. And even the lowest of the low could identify with Jesus Christ and feel comfortable coming to him. He was a son of a carpenter from the city of Nazareth, the wrong side of the tracks. Why? Because he wanted to remain approachable. Because as the word of God tells us, Jesus says to us, come unto me, all you that weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he says, take my yoke upon you. And he says, learn of me. And he says this, because I am meek and I am lowly in heart. Jesus chose the simple things because we needed that in order to be able to come to him. And here's the big idea from the entire message this morning. This is the overarching theme of everything this morning is that Jesus takes the simple things in our life and he takes them and he turns them around and he uses them for great purposes. This kind of falls right in line with what we talked about last week with the story of Andrew. Remember, Andrew was that insignificantly significant disciple, right? He only brought a couple people to Jesus, but the people he brought to Jesus, namely his brother Peter, brought thousands. And it reminds us that we may not think that we have all the skills at our disposal to really change the world for Jesus Christ, but sharing the gospel with just one person will change their world, and God will continue to change the world as we share the gospel with other people. Jesus chooses the, the simple things and uses them for great purposes. You see, and that's a good word for us right now during this time of, of social distancing, during this pandemic, because right now we've been kind of forced to kind of go back to the simple way of doing things. My schedule is not near as, as, as heavy as it used to be. You know, being a, being a father and a, and a pastor and a husband and a father of two girls who have very active social calendars and who don't have driver's license yet, uh, Stacy and I would find ourselves just being taxis, taking them back and forth to what they had to do. All of that's just kind of come to a, come to a stop. And we just all have time on our hands right now. And we've all kind of come to the place. And I, I, for one, am beginning to appreciate the simple things. Now, probably in another couple of weeks, I'm going to get tired of it. But for now, I'm kind of appreciating the simple things. And maybe you are too. Time has kind of slowed down. We have time to go on family walks together, to have dinner with one another at the table. And uh, we begin to think about what's important. When all of the fluff and when all of the stuff kind of melts away, we find out what's really important in life. And that's our family. That's the people that we have around us. Most importantly, it's our faith. It's our God. And so it's kind of a good word for us right now is that Jesus takes those simple things and he's gonna take this time, this time of simplicity, this time of, this time of simplicity, but also this time of angst and this time of worry. And he's gonna use it for good eternal purposes if we'll let him and if we'll listen to his voice. So today we're gonna look at three simple things in this passage and in this, uh, in this parade that takes place. Well, it may have been thrown together and there wasn't a whole lot of fanfare that went on. There are three things that are mentioned in this passage that we need to take notice of and that we learn lessons from today. And uh, those three simple things are simply this. Number one is a donkey. Number two is a palm branch. And number three is a rock. We're gonna learn, we're gonna learn three very significant lessons from these three just simple things that Jesus, once he touches them, he makes them eternally significant. So first of all, let's look at, let's look at a donkey. The first thing that I have to wonder when a donkey is mentioned in our text, because the Bible says that Jesus said, I want you to go over to the, town, the next town and I want you to find this donkey. And not just the donkey, but I want you to find like the baby donkey that's there, the foal. And I want you to bring him and I want you to, uh, to just take him. If they have a problem with it, just tell them that the master has need of it and they'll let you go. And so they go over there and they do that and they bring it back and it's just this donkey that, that you're going. So I have to ask myself in this parade, if you're gonna parade into God's holy city, and be noticed as God's chosen one. Why do you choose a donkey? 
I mean, does anybody else wonder that? Why do you choose a donkey to ride on? Because what do you think of when you see a donkey? Just picture a donkey in your mind right now. What does it make you think of? What do you know of a donkey? Well, what everybody knows about a, a donkey or a mule especially is that they're stubborn, right? Uh, donkeys are also probably smelly. I've never met a donkey that didn't smell bad. Uh, maybe, maybe some of you might say, well, donkeys are cute. I don't, don't mess with the donkeys. I'm not trying to disparage the donkeys, but you know, they're not the most majestic things. When we think of a donkey, we don't think majestic. We don't think of something that a king would ride. We definitely don't think it's something that the son of God, the king of kings and the Lord of lords would ride. And here's the thing. In Jewish culture, uh, donkeys were known as being the simple man's transportation. All right, so if you had transportation back in those days before they had cars, you know, today we've got the rich man's transportation. You know, you got your Bentleys and your Teslas and your, you know, your Lamborghinis and stuff. And then you got the simple man's transportation, you know, like a, you know, like a Ford Focus. If you've got a Focus, that's cool because you've chosen to be very reasonable in what you've, what you've spent on. But it's just the simple man's transportation. And it's just what normal, common people would get around them. Again, Jesus keeping in step with being that approachable savior. So when you think of Jesus making this triumphant entry into the city, I gotta ask myself, God, why did you choose a donkey? We've had a lot of time at the house, so we've had a lot of uh, movie nights at Holmes Holmes Manor. Uh, One of my favorite Disney movies to watch on Disney Plus is Aladdin. I like live action. I like like the animated too. I think I like the animated better because that's the one I grew up with. But I love that scene as uh, Aladdin has met Genie and the Genie has said, you get three wishes and I can make you anything. And so Aladdin's first wish, everybody knows what it is, right? Aladdin's first wish is that he wants to be made a prince. And so there's that scene as the Genie is saying, all right, we've got the clothes, we've got everything you need, but you need some transportation. You need something to ride into the city on, something that says, here comes royalty. And so he takes Abu, his little monkey, and he turns him into a camel. He said, what's going to catch people's attention? He said, riding into your own very own camel. And he steps back and he says, I don't know about that. I think I can do better. And he would go through all of these different transportation devices and he finally settles on an elephant. Because an elephant back in those days was rare, it was exotic, and it was going to really create a scene as Aladdin goes marching up to Jasmine's palace to win her heart. You see, that's kind of my thought. If Jesus is going to come into the city to win the hearts of the people, to say, hey, your Savior has arrived, why doesn't he come in on something more majestic than just this little donkey? And he specifically asks for a donkey. And the thing about Jesus is, he's the very word of God. He was the word that was spoken in creation. Jesus Truly, in his power and his miracle-working ability, he could have just said, hey, donkey, and it shows up. He could have said, horse, and a horse was spoken into existence. He could have said, I want a flying unicorn to ride in, and he could have spoken into existence, and it would have been there. But Jesus chooses a donkey. Why does he do that? Well, the Bible tells us in our text, in verse number four, he does this because way back in the Old Testament, there was a lesser-known prophet named Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is a book of the Bible. It's got about nine or 10 chapters in it. And a lot of times people gloss over it because they want to hit up Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of the bigger name prophets. So even in one of the lesser known prophets, we find this prophecy that tells us this. And it says this, and Matthew quotes it in our text. He says, this all took place in verse number four so that what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah might be fulfilled. And he says this, tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus did this to obey the prophecy of the Messiah that was to come because it would signal to everybody that was there in Jerusalem as believers or as people who had followed the Old Testament ways looking for the Messiah. It would signal to them, here comes the Messiah. It would tell everyone, this is a moment where prophecy is being fulfilled. 
But you still have to ask yourself, why did Zechariah say that he would come on a donkey? Why didn't God allow for the prophecy to be something bigger and bolder and make a grander statement? You see, the top Roman soldiers and Caesars, they rode in on fancy chariots pulled by these grand majestic horses and beasts. None of them chose donkeys to ride into the city on. But here comes Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace. And he chooses to ride on a donkey. See, he chose a donkey again because he wanted to display humility. Someone who didn't need to display any humility whatsoever chose to display the greatest humility. Why? Because if he hadn't done that, we would have never turned to him. See, Jesus makes himself so approachable to us. And in choosing those humble trappings, he's made approachable. He has made a friend that sits closer than any brother. He's made that humble servant king that we all need to be our savior. You see, everything about Jesus screams, come to me. Everything about what Jesus does, what he said, what he taught, and what he did, and what he continues to do screams, come to me. Everything about what God is doing today in our world screams, come to us. Come to me and find peace. Come to me and find rest. Come to me and find hope. Have you heard that voice? Have you heard that, uh, that call to you that says, come to me and find what your heart is searching for? You see, also, we can all identify with the donkey. You see, that donkey was just a little donkey. It was just over in this little podunk town, probably not being thought of by much of anything. But because Jesus chose to ride on him, that donkey was made eternally significant. Because here we are 2,000 plus years later, long after that donkey has gone off the face of the earth and we're still talking about that donkey. Why? Not because of that donkey, but because of who rode on it. And you may be sitting there thinking that your life is not that significant, that you are undesirable, that you are like the lowest on the totem pole. But understand this, when Jesus is invested in your life, you're no longer undesirable and insignificant. You are holy and chosen by the King of Kings. You see, because we all identify with the donkey. We're all simple, we're undesirable, we're broken in our sin and we're broken in our lostness, but when Jesus gets involved, he changes our purpose. Our life is not the same. Everything, all the old stuff passes away and all the new, all the, everything becomes new in him. You see, he gives our existence a brand new meaning. When I trusted Christ, my existence changed. The meaning of Derek's life changed. It changed from what do I wanna do to what do you have planned for me, Lord? You see, we're no longer undesirable and simple. We're made holy and we're made chosen in him. And that's the thing that we have to understand as we transition into the, into the palm branch is this, that this donkey calls us to remember a couple of things. Number one is that Jesus fulfills our every need. Jesus already had it covered. Even though that donkey was over in another city, he already knew where it was and he knew where to find it. Jesus knows your need and he already knows how to fulfill that need. Trust him with that. But we also learn from that donkey is that being, Jesus will take us from being simple and undesirable to being holy and chosen in him. So let's think about the palm branch for a second. This palm branch that, that we always talk about and many people have put on their doors right now as I was driving through town, you can see palm branches out on people's doors. Maybe you have some where you're living at. Uh, maybe you've had kids coloring, coloring sheets with palm branches and stuff. Um, look at where it comes from in verse number eight again. It said, a large crowd began to spread their clothes on the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted saying, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar saying, who is this? 
Everybody had to know, even though they couldn't see him coming, they were noticed by the uproar and by the the proclamation that the king is coming. And I think that teaches us something, church. Does our city know about Jesus because of the proclamation that we are making? See, they wouldn't have known that Jesus was coming in because he was just on this little donkey. People probably wouldn't have seen it. But because they were shouting Hosanna and they were preparing his way and they were causing an uproar, does our city know about Jesus because of our proclamation of him? But let's think about how this parade takes place. The Bible says that those people who knew the Old Testament prophecy see Jesus riding into the city gates on these donkeys. And all of a sudden, their prophecy signals start going off and like, it's the Messiah. It's the Messiah. And so they immediately go and they begin to find anything they can to lay down this beautiful floor, this beautiful road, this alleyway for him to walk through. Because they knew that it was time to show reverence and honor to the Messiah. And because they hadn't had any time to plan, they went and found the thing that was close to them. And there's something that's not around us, but was very around them in Jerusalem was palm trees. And they grabbed those palm branches and they're significant as well because of the symbol of victory. Anytime someone had a great victory, there was palm branches that were laid and that were waved and that were waved in the air, kind of like a foam finger at a basketball game, the, the number one foam finger. The palm branch was kind of the ancient version of that. And they came and they laid down their palm branches. And those who couldn't get palm branches, they just took off their coats and they laid them down so that Jesus could walk. It was kind of like the ancient red carpet experience. And they did all of this because they recognized Jesus as the Messiah. Some people jump in front of Jesus and they guide him, beginning to kind of like make way in the crowd. And other people walk behind to kind of protect him as well. And as the parade progresses, the whole city lines up to see what's going on. Who is that that's getting such a welcome? And is it a great king or a conquering hero that's coming in and everybody all of a sudden realizes, no, it's not a conquering hero. It's not a great king. It's not a general. It's Jesus. He's a carpenter's son from Nazareth. And they're like, what in the world is going on? And they're looking at their palm branches thinking, why do we have this out? But here's the thing we have to understand. We never underestimate the, the, um, the impact of a mob mentality. Everybody was excited before they even knew who they were excited for. But that's something we have to understand as a church. When we begin to lose our excitement and we begin to go silent on our proclamation, we can't expect the world who needs Jesus so much to be excited about him if we're not gonna be. You see, we have to make sure that we're making that proclamation of Jesus. That's what I learned from this. But you know another thing that I wonder when I look at this is how do people turn from him so fast? Those very same people that are there lining the street, shouting Hosanna, waving palm branches, laying down their coats, are gonna be the very same people that just about five days later are gonna be standing in Pilate's court shouting, crucify him. Some of them are gonna be wearing the very coats that they laid down for him to walk over when they they were praising him. Now they're gonna be wearing those coats when they're calling for his execution. Again, never underestimate the impact of a mob mentality. They changed just like that. And I always wonder, how do people change just so quickly from being amazed by Jesus to being disgusted by him and being repulsed by him? Because you don't cry for a person's execution in those ancient days unless you were disgusted by them, ashamed of them, embarrassed of them, or intimidated by them. And that may have been all the reasons that they chose to want to crucify him. But how did they change from celebrating him to crucifying him? Because here's the thing, is they're walking in the city, they're cheering with excitement. Everything has come to a fever pitch. The palm branches they waved were a symbol of victory at that time. And they're waving and they're, they're celebrating him as the victorious king that they had been waiting for for centuries. So how'd they change? Well, here's what happened that Jesus did that they didn't expect him to do. Because instead of riding up to the palace throne and taking power, he rides through Jerusalem 
and he goes to the temple and he drives out the lowly money changers in the temple. And then he moves on through Jerusalem to this tiny, uh, small town of Bethany and he settles at a friend's house. You see, what they had been expecting of the Messiah for so long, especially as an oppressed people, the Jewish people being oppressed by the Roman government, is they expected that when the Messiah showed up, he was gonna put the smack down on Rome. So when they expected that Jesus was coming into the city, they expected him to veer straight up to the government house and to go in and take over and to, ru- and to run the Romans right out of Jerusalem, right out of God's city. But instead of doing that, he goes to God's house and he drives out the money changers, which nobody cared about the money changers at that time, except for Jesus. And then he doesn't stay in the capital city. He goes in this small little town and he just kind of hangs out with his friends for a little while. See, no battle. No smackdown on Rome, no change of power. This is not the way the people had expected things to play out when the Messiah showed up. What they had expected of Christ, Jesus didn't fill their expectation because he was gonna go above and beyond what their expectation was. And you know what? For a lot of us, we have the same problem. We expect Jesus to give us smooth sailing every day of our lives. But Jesus never promised that. What he did promise was that I will be with you no matter what seas you may sail on. Even when the sailing gets rough, I'll be with you. My presence will be with you. And the truth is, if Jesus had taken power over the Romans, there would have been another empire that would raise up to take them over later on. He didn't come to just give political power. He came to give freedom and victory over sin and over death. And today, that same victory is offered to us today because he died on the cross, because he went to Calvary, and because he rose from the dead, he secured the ultimate victory. Not political victory, he secured the ultimate freedom. Not governmental freedom, he secured victory over death and freedom from sin. And that victory was secured not just for the people that were living at that time and in that generation, that victory was secured for generations that would follow, generations that will follow us until he returns. See, they didn't understand the depth. But have you ever been there with Jesus yourself? You expected this Christian life and you expected Jesus to do something and he didn't come through because you thought you would make the rules and you thought you would tell Jesus what he needed to do to be real in your life. Maybe he didn't heal the cancer. Maybe he didn't make the virus go away quick enough. Maybe he didn't stop the layoff. But trust me, Jesus is still there with you. The ultimate victory has yet to be seen completely. You see, he didn't come to set that that kingdom up. He came as a spiritual king, not as an earthly one. And his victory restores all of creation and he makes a way for everyone to have restored fellowship with God. And that's the message this morning. Is the greatest victory falls to the people who choose to celebrate Jesus now and praise him now rather than waiting until it's too late. Jesus has provided you and me a victory through his sacrifice on the cross and through his resurrection from the dead. Do you have that victory? Have you trusted Christ as your savior? See, the apostle Paul gives us an understanding of what of the work that Jesus came to do. You see, he didn't come into Jerusalem that day just to drive out the Romans. He came into Jerusalem that day to announce that the Messiah has come to provide spiritual renewal. Here's what it says in the book of Ephesians as the apostle Paul writes a little bit later on after Jesus is ascended back into heaven. He says this, he says, my prayer is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith in him. I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth and breadth of God's love. 
and that to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And he says this now, unto him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. You see, if Jesus had only come to overthrow the Roman Empire back 2,000 years ago, that verse wouldn't have made made a hill of beans difference. But because Jesus came to overthrow the power of sin and death, that verse means everything to us. That verse gives us hope. It gives us a reason to praise, a reason to worship, a reason to wake up tomorrow because we know that our days rest in his ever-capable hands because it doesn't matter what may come our way. Height, depth, nor any, any principality, any powers may come our way. Jesus, if our lives are hid with Christ on high, we are secure in him. You see, our expectation of, of Christ oftentimes falls short of his promise and his purpose to us, doesn't it? We expect Christ to do a lot of things. And so I wanna ask you this question. What's your expectation of Christ? What are you expecting of Jesus honestly? Because a lot of times people get saved for different reasons. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago when I was younger, when I was 10 years old, I trusted Christ because I did not wanna go to hell. I wanted to go to heaven. That's not a bad reason to trust Christ. Some people trust Christ because they think uh, because they, they want to have a relationship with Christ. That's a fantastic reason. They trust Christ because they want to follow him as a disciple. But when we trust Christ, a lot of us sometimes bring expectations into that relationship that Jesus never intended to meet. But someone along the way convinced us that if you get saved, all of your problems are going to go away. That's what someone said. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I will be with you today, yesterday, and forever. I will be that friend that's closer than a brother. And when you need me the most, when your life has ended, I will be your salvation. And I have sealed you until the day of redemption. That's the victory that Jesus came to pronounce. That's the victory that's available to us now. But there's more than this. There's one clear purpose in the Bible about Jesus that we cannot deny. is that Jesus wants to be our savior. John 3, 16, the most famous verse in the Bible tells us, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the most quoted, most used, most printed verse in all of history. And it tells us exactly what we need to know. Jesus wants to be our savior, but he wants to be so much more than that. He doesn't just wanna be your get out of hell free card. He wants to be that friend that sticks closer than a brother. He wants to be your comforter. He wants to be your peace. He wants to be your counselor. He wants to be your healer. He wants to be your all in all, but you have to let him. You have to make way for him. You have to allow him in to that. Just like those people in the city did that day. You see, the, the, the donkey teaches us about how God will take our insignificant lives and make them significant for his glory. But the palm branch teaches us this, that we all have true victory in Christ and that this is a victory that we've yet to see to the fullest. You see, many of you, you've walked with Christ for years and you can say this and I I can say this as well, that there is no friend in my life like Jesus Christ. He has been there through thick and thin. When other people would walk out, he never leaves no matter how many times I've let him down, and I have probably let him down more than I've let anyone else on planet Earth down in my life. And he's still there. His love remains. His love will remain for you too. But you see, it's a victory that I've yet to see because I haven't seen heaven yet. I haven't seen what eternity waits for me. None of us have. That's the victory that we'll see to the fullest. When we get to heaven one day, we're gonna realize just how good God is, just what he saved us to not just what he saved us from. And lastly, before I close out today, I wanna talk about that rock. You see, there were some people there uh, in Luke's account 
that as Jesus was walking in the city and everybody was just having a great time and they were praising him and they were crying out, Lord, save us now, the Pharisees were there. And they approached Jesus and they said, you need to stop this. You need to stop them from doing this. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 39, it says, some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said to him, master, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and he said unto them, I tell you this, guys, that if they should hold their peace, then the very rocks that are around, they're going to cry out in their absence. Jesus looks at the Pharisees who were possibly just trying to keep the Romans from getting mad at them and from trying to cause problems with them. For whatever reason, maybe they were jealous, whatever it was, they're like, they don't like this happening. And so they told Jesus, control this, tell them to stop. And Jesus said this. He said, if humans, if humanity doesn't praise me, then creation will praise me. If humanity goes silent, then creation will continue to praise me. You know what we learned from this? These are very important lessons for us to get from these little rocks. And any rock that you may see, if you go outside today and you find a stone, remember this. It teaches us this lesson, is that we have to choose to worship Jesus. Worshiping Jesus, following Jesus is a choice. It's a choice that I made when I was 10 years old to trust him as Savior. Following Jesus is a daily choice. Will I obey him or will I reject him? Will I go against what he, is, what he wants of me? Choosing to worship Jesus is the greatest choice that you'll ever make. Choosing to follow Jesus as your Savior is the greatest choice that you will ever make in your life. But you see, Christ, and what we have to understand is Christ is always going to be worshipped, but there will always be those who choose not to do it and not to join in. And so the personal question I have for you right now is what's your choice going to be? Will you choose to worship him? Will you choose to follow him? It's because man, humanity, is the only part of creation that's been given that choice. The Bible tells us so many times that all of creation falls under submission and perfect obedience to him. The Bible says that the trees resound his praise, that the winds and the seas obeyed him. He could say, peace be still, and the storm would stop. He tells the tides when to go in and when to come out. He tells the mountains where to move. He hangs the stars in place with just the mention of the, of the word and calls uh, heavenly planets to spin in orbit. And even the rocks are mandated to cry out if we keep our silence. Jesus doesn't need us to prove that he's the king. Jesus doesn't need us to feel like God because he already is. See, he has all of creation in submission to him, but he doesn't need us. He chooses us. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me, but he chooses us. There's something special about being chosen, right? Not just being forced, but being chosen and given that opportunity to come to him. You see, one day, all of creation is going to be destroyed and wiped away. Those rocks that Jesus was talking about, those palm branches, that donkey, all those things are going to be gone. But you know what's going to live on? The souls of humanity. That's the only thing that is eternal that is right here on this earth right now and his word. The question is, is your soul secure in the hand of an eternal God? You see, because the rocks remind us that we have to keep crying out to the one who's worthy of our praise. And the rocks remind us that he has chosen us above all of creation to save us and to give us an eternal home in heaven. And that's how I wanna close out this morning and ask you this. Do you know for sure that you have an eternal home in heaven? You see, there's one other simple thing that's not mentioned in the text, but it loomed large over the entire scene that day. You see, off in the distance, as Jesus was coming, into the, coming down the road and through Main Street, through Jerusalem, off in the distance was a hill called Golgotha, but we call it Calvary in our language. And on Golgotha stood these crosses that were there, symbols of execution. 
And we know, because we know the story of Easter and we know the story of Jesus, that Jesus would eventually, just a few days later, be sentenced to die on one of those crosses. And when he was nailed to the, to the cross by his hands and his feet, blood began to spill from his body and it pooled down at the bottom of that cross. But that blood that pooled at the bottom of the cross has a reach that spanned further than the city of Jerusalem. It spanned worldwide. And it spanned further than just that generation that was there on that ancient day. It spans to today, right here and now. Because the blood of Jesus was shed to cover our sins. And if you will plead the blood of Jesus, if you trust Christ as your Savior, if you say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart and forgive me, cleanse me of my sins, and make me your child, he will save you. And that's the question each one of us have to answer today, is will you trust Jesus? You see, everybody was celebrating that day in Jerusalem except for one person, other than the Pharisees. Jesus wasn't celebrating that day. The Bible says in the book of Luke chapter, uh, chapter 19, it says this, it says, Jesus, was he was coming into the city of Jerusalem, it says he began to cry. And here's what he said. He said, if you only knew this day, what would bring peace to you? But now it is hidden from your eyes because you did not recognize the time that God visited you. What he was saying is he knew that just a few days later they would all turn on him. We cannot be that way. We must receive him, the peace, when it has come to, to us. This is why we continue to have these live streams during this time of social distancing. Is because we need to continue to pronounce that Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is your hope. Jesus is your peace. Don't turn your back on him. Don't turn other, other places. Look square in his eyes and see his love and his compassion and his saving grace. Trust him. And if you would want to trust Christ today, we have to understand this, is that we're all sinners, every one of us. And when Jesus died on the cross, he died to save us from our sins. And that what we must do now is believe in him and receive that gift of salvation. And the Bible says, if anyone will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be saved. So if you don't know Christ as your savior today, would you trust him now and pray a prayer something like this? Lord Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. I realize that I need you. I realize that in order to have eternal life, I have to place my faith and trust in you. And I thank you that you died in my place so that I could have forgiveness of my sins. And I'm asking you to save me now. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you prayed that prayer, the Bible says that you trusted Christ as your savior. And that is a one-time thing. You are born again, never to have to be born again again. He saves us once and for all. 